Farm Food Facts, where every farmer, every acre, and every voice matter. Welcome to Farm Food Facts for Wednesday, July 10th, 2019. I'm your host, Phil Limper. Today is all about the food supply chain. Later in the podcast, we will talk with Trey Braswell from Braswell Farms, which is a fourth-generation family-owned company that produces and markets quality feed and eggs for American families and businesses. But first, we hear from Dr. Robin Metcalf, who's a lecturer at the College of Natural Sciences at the University of Texas at Austin. She's also the founder of Food and City, an innovative project that explores the future of our food system and also author of a, I wish I could have come up with this title myself, it's Food Roots, Growing Bananas in Iceland and Other Tales from Logistics of Eating. Uh, Food and City tells stories through print and digital platforms, sparking thoughtful conversations and inspiring change in the global food system. For eight years, Food and City has encouraged entrepreneurs to solve food system problems with an annual challenge prize, working with over 75 food startups and 250000 in funding. Robin, welcome to Farm Food Facts. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's start. And I, I know um, in the book, you really look very detailed at this, but let's start with your thoughts on the future of the global food supply chain. Like you'd like to know the future? Yes. I want to know, is the future is the future good or am I going to have to move to, to Iceland to grow bananas? Gosh, I think they're going to come to you. So that's the good news. Okay. Unless you really want to go to Iceland. Um, but I think that, you know, the whole issue, the whole idea of being able to even predict the future from where we're sitting today um, in the evolution of this emerging new food system is pretty daunting. And I would challenge anyone who says they, they know where, we're, where this is all going to come out. It's almost like every single stop along the way to your plate is, is uprooted. It's, it's being reimagined, redefined, repositioned, mostly through some sort of digital technology. Um, I mean, if you were to sort of guess where we're going to end up, it would probably lead to ideas of um, personalized health, you know, where food actually becomes medicine for the mm -hmm. first time, seriously so. It might uh, lead to um, uh, the idea that food will be grown in entirely new places. And uh, because we're able to do that now, we can basically you know, move growing spaces into cities, uh, enclosed growing areas, we can print it, we can, we can make it in laboratories uh, you know, through um, using cell biology approaches. All kinds of things are happening to where food will come from, and, and you know the whole idea that we'll grow our food and that you know in the in the grain belt, for example, will be outmoded. But we don't know where it's going to land, but it will be someplace new. Um, it will again be personal. It will be uh, much more sustainable in terms of impacts on the environment. I think that everybody's sort of gotten their big woke call on that and, you know, trying to figure out how to use less energy and impact the environment in um, less harmful ways. So those are the, the main things. It's, it's coming from new forms, coming from new places, very personal. And I think the other thing is sort of the given that, that we will have more 
technology and automation in it than we've ever had before. Uh, and I think that's sort of a, a sea change from this period that we're emerging from where, you know, engineered food was just bad. Um, you know, having machines in our system were bad. And I think now, especially with the fact that we have generations that have grown up with technology from the beginning the, of their lives, um, there's a much more uh, acceptance, tolerance of having technology in our food system. So those are all the things that are sort of swirling around on that vision. So Robin, you write that networked digital tools will improve the food system, but will also challenge our relationship to food in anxiety provoking ways. Tell me why I'm going to be anxious. <laughs> well, I think the thing about food, which is very different than say automating, you know, the, the way cars are made or food is so personal. so tied into people's sense of who they are, their identity, their stories, um, their personal health. You know, it's, it's, it's hyper personal. And once you begin to intervene with technology that could be, um, I mean, yes, I know AI is coming along and, you know, we may reach mm -hmm. the singularity of having humans, uh, machines become humans, but putting that aside, having um, technology deliver the benefits while at the same time challenging our relationship with food, I think is the anxious making piece of it. You know, in other words, at what point is having machines make your food, deliver your food, create the tastes, uh, will it break down that relationship to ways where, you know, it's, it's disruptive to people's psyche again, you know, just disturbing. I don't know, aren't you disturbed by this? Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I want to shift over to, to food roots for, for a moment. Um, you, you say that we want to know more about the people that facilitate the journey of food and that humans are involved at every point in the infrastructure of food and that these people who are in the middle are largely invisible in our media and they shouldn't be. Right. What do you mean by that? Well, I think this is the whole thing about what has intrigued me about the supply chain in general. Um, you know, it seems like there's a lot of visibility in, in terms of the people who are cooking our food, making our food, uh, you know, the, the, the people who are in sort of the craft food business and CPG, consumer products, and farming, and you know, who's out there in the field, who's growing our food. But once it leaves the field, and before it reaches the store, there's an entire infrastructure and workforce that handles your food that is invisible, but we don't know who they are. And part of it, I think, is due to the fact that people sort of avert their eyes from things that look industrial and look like, quote, big food is in the mix. And the fact is that we need everybody in between some of their jobs um, are designed to be invisible, like you really don't want to see, um, you know, the, the sausage stuffers, etc., the packers mm -hmm. and shippers. But I think it's really important to both acknowledge what's going on there and at the same time understand it because we're really serious about improving the food system. We need to know where all the friction points are, where the, you know, where the improvements um, are needed. I really love this sort of dark and unknown part of the food system and, and continuing to work in that, in that area. And the, you know, the anxiety building piece that you referred to earlier, 
I think one of the things that should make people anxious is the fact that these are the like the makers in our food system. These people in the middle are working with their hands. They are the first ones that are being automated out of their jobs. It's a very large workforce that is about to find itself in need of new jobs. And I think when you take a lot of people who um, gain satisfaction by doing things with their hands and remove that work practice or style, um, it affects people's psyche, it, 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 not only their identity, but um, it's very different um, to see people who can point to um, quantities of things that they've personally made or delivered and remove that sense of satisfaction and say, you're going to be working in front of a computer for the rest of your you know, working days. I think there's a workforce disconnect there. I think we're not even beginning to understand what that means to all of us. And this is, a, this is the first workforce to really feel the impact of that change. So, Robin, I know that you, uh, you started uh, a working conservation farm. So you're, you've got farmer in your blood, uh, Kelmscott Rare Breeds Farm in Maine, and you conserved heritage livestock for a decade. Uh, when you run into farmers today, what do you share with them from your insights? And what do you what would you like farmers to hear from you? You know, this whole question of who who are the farmers? Um, I mean, if you took existing farmers and wanted to give them some sort of message from what I learned from the book, I would say be open to using technology, especially for labor saving and sort of optimizing and for everything from precision agriculture. Also, heads up, be prepared to negotiate, to monetize and control your data because that's, that's a powerful thing. And a system for doing that needs to be developed. But also I think just as is a slight segue from that question is that I think that people who will be quote unquote farmers will have very different CVs than those that we've seen up to this point. They will be people who come into the food production world via engineering, uh, computer science, artificial intelligence, software, hardware. So I think we're going to be having a very different group of what we might would have or could have called farmers producing our food. Well, Robin, thanks so much for joining us today on Farm Food Facts and keep up the great work. Thank you so much, Phil. Thanks for thanks for talking with me today. And now the news you need to know. App Harvest makes an impact on the produce supply chain for U.S. grocers. A 60-acre facility in Kentucky is expected to open next year with crops that are non-GMO, chemical-free, and watered by the rain. This facility will be one of the largest greenhouses in the U.S., and it anticipates shipping its first crop by 2020, hopefully revolutionizing the produce supply chain for U.S. grocers. App Harvest Greenhouse is located in Appalachia, which is less than a day's drive to more than two-thirds of the U.S. population, including large cities like New York, Philadelphia, and Boston. This convenient proximity could potentially lower transportation costs by a whopping 75% and enable the facility to compete against foreign imports. The greenhouse plans to utilize controlled environmental agriculture inspired by consumer demand for healthy foods produced in a sustainable, transparent way. 
Appalachia hopes their greenhouse facility will become one of the largest indoor produce hubs in the U.S. What grocers need to know is that ag is moving quickly, very quickly, to the benefit of retailers. And now, in anticipation of our upcoming guest egg farmer, here's a lighthearted egg-related story. Social media is fueling a market for novelty eggs. Is this the rise of the hashtag eggfluencer? When Michelle Livingston opted to put a couple of chickens in her backyard, she had no idea how much she'd come to love their antics, their intelligence, and their beautiful eggs. The birds were Easter eggers, a breed that lays green and blue eggs. Seriously. Before long, she and her husband purchased a farm about 200 miles southwest of Denver, and they were ready to grow their own flock. Sunshine Mesa Farm sells their rainbow dozens that come in white, green, sky blue, and multiple shades of taut. Livingston keeps 20 different breeds of chickens, ranging from dark brown laying wall smullers to locally bred highly production blue or green layers. And this has given rise to a demand for beautiful, colorful, Instagram-friendly rainbow eggs. Posting photos of these colored eggs on social media garners huge views. And while rainbow eggs may not be commercially practical, they do provide an invaluable marketing tool. As small farms often can't compete with industrial ag's low prices, these smaller farms must market themselves in a way that sets them apart. And rainbow eggs are like Instagram catnip, especially for millennials and Generation Z. Offline, rainbow eggs appear to be a mix of both kitchen decoration and virtue, as many of the specialty egg clientele buy these colorful eggs as party offerings, a modern spin on the traditional bottle of wine. What grocers need to know is to stock these eggs to bring in new and more shoppers to your traditionally boring egg case. Trey Braswell is the fourth generation president of Braswell Family Farms, whose slogan on their website says it best. We are eggs. Trey, welcome to Farm Food Facts. Hey, thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. So, Trey, you got your start on the farm by sweeping floors, unloading rail cars. Now you're the president. How has raising chickens and laying eggs changed over the decades? Um, you know, it has changed a lot. You know, I've been here for about um, 11 or so years, and I did start sweeping floors. My great uncle said, if you can't find something else to do, you better have a broom in your hand. So, um, <laughs> That's great. you know, since uh, I'm the fourth generation and since the first generation was around, um, and, the, and when we initially got into raising baby chicks and, and egg layers, things have changed so much. But the interesting thing is that a lot of things um, are coming back around full circle, as we might hit on today with just the different types of egg production. You know, people um, are going back to the way things were 100 years ago. Well, you know, that that's to your point. You're one of the few egg producers who offer a wide range of eggs. You have organic, cage-free, pasture-raised what are the trends that you see happening with consumers and their desire for eggs? Obviously, you're responding to it, so you're looking towards the future. You know, we've been very fortunate. Uh, the Lord has provided us with a little foresight, you know, throughout the years. My my dad and my granddad and my great uncle have always kind of been on the, the cusp and on the forefront of, you know, what's next? You know, what's going to be different in our industry? And uh, we started producing Eglin's Best Eggs in the late 80s, and we got into the organic in the 90s. We were one of the only producers in that back in that time period, cage-free, and now we're doing pasture-raised and 
free range. And, you know, we just see consumers, um, consumers desire a choice. And, and that's been the way that our company has been successful is, um, you know, embracing that. You know, we want consumers to have a choice and we want to do a good job producing those types of eggs and feed. And, um, you know, that's just been important to us. I want a consumer to be able to go in the store and have a choice and not be forced into one type of egg or another because it's either easier for me or more PC for somebody else's own personal beliefs. But we just want people to be able to choose, you know, what fits their family and their budget and, and their lifestyle. And obviously the price of, of eggs differ from conventional eggs to, you know, pasture raised and, and cage free. So not only are you giving them a choice uh, about the type of egg they want, but also you're giving them the choice on affordability, which is great. Absolutely. Um, you know, people, some people strictly want a high quality, safe protein in an egg and they want it at the best price and that's out there that's we provide that in a conventional commodity egg and and some people feel like and desire to pay a little bit more to um, either have a nutritionally enhanced egg like an egg on the best or either an egg like an organic or pasture raised where they feel like they're doing something uh, by providing that bird a different environment which they may or may not feel like is is a better environment um, and that's that's of a value to consumers. And so we just, we want to be able to provide those options. You and your family have made a serious commitment to everyone who works on the farm to have a great life. Tell us a bit more about that and why it's so important to you. Well, I'm glad you asked. You know, we believe at at Braswell Family Farms that this business is uh, God's. You know, we're giving it to be good stewards over, and that means taking care of the business, taking care of the people, and um and that it's ours for a time and uh so we want to be we want to honor that and uh the people that work with us are our greatest asset and we wouldn't be where we are without them so we really we try to take that word family and not only is it a family business a family-owned business but it's um you know we try to treat our people like part of our family and that means everything from being generous with the profits of the company to um, you know, the kind of the atmosphere around and, uh, the, you know, the things we do to look out for them, provide, you know, benefits that enrich the lives of the employee and their family. You know, everybody's got things going on in their life that are hard and great. And, uh, and we want to be of support. You know, you can't get caught up in thinking that everything has to stop at the door because people just can't turn it all off. And we want to provide um, support for them uh, where possible to to help them um, be healthier here at work and at home. That's fabulous. Well, Trey, thanks for joining us today on Farm Food Facts. And to learn more about Trey and the company and the family, visit BraswellFamilyFarms.com and be sure to join the flock. And thank you for joining us on Farm Food Facts. For more information on all things food and agriculture and to listen to our archives, please visit FoodDialogues.com under the Programs and Media tab. And visit us on Facebook at U.S. Farmers and Ranchers or on Twitter at USFRA. Until next week.